in our outline. What do you know about that? Time flies when you're having fun. And in our fifth lesson on the exercise of church discipline in the local church, talking about the informal stages of church discipline. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, and looking at some of these steps in church discipline, particularly those that take place before the discipline comes to the attention of the church itself formally. I haven't even said anything upsetting yet. I got that baby up. Sorry. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the answers to prayer that you have given us already this week, not only by sustaining us to hear what your word has to say and to apply it to our lives, but also by keeping your hand of care upon us and giving us a rich time of fellowship and enjoyment of recreation. Lord, indeed, it has been a glorious week and a week that you have blessed, and for that reason, it has been so satisfying. Uh, the time goes so quickly, O oh Lord, and we hunger and thirst for one another so much that we uh, hate to think that we just have a, a few more hours together, Lord, but we do pray that we will make the most of those. And Lord, since we get tired having fun, uh, we know that as we come to the end of the week, uh, the uh, sleeping that maybe isn't as good as at home and, and other demands uh, are uh, wearing us down. So we do pray, O oh Lord, that you will continue to give us the thoughtfulness and the readiness to hear your word and to put it into practice in our lives. We thank you for the many discussions that have taken place even outside of the classes as we have been trying to digest these words from you and to see how they will apply to our attitudes and to our behavior as members of one another in the body of Christ. So we ask that you will now take this time that we have and make it profitable to us by being with us by your spirit to bless to our minds and to our lives your word of truth. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, in this lesson we want to begin to look carefully, uh, although not exhaustively, maybe exhaustingly, but not exhaustively, at the steps in the process of discipline that Jesus outlines for us in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. Most of what we've said so far has been in the way of talking about motivation to be concerned, to involve ourselves in the practices of church discipline, and also to uh, help us to get our attitude, our motives, straight as we proceed. But now we're going to talk specifically about the how-to instructions that Jesus gives us in the actual practice of doing church discipline. And so I hope that we'll be able to... Uh, work through this material without forgetting what we've already talked about uh, in terms of attitude and motive that's gone before, because really knowing how to do it uh, is only part of knowing how to do it well, how to do it biblically. And while we think about these early stages of informal church discipline, I'd like you to keep a problem in mind that we always have to be addressing, at least mentally and sometimes physically, when we come to dealing with damaged or broken relationships between people. And as I put in the outline there, what I'm thinking about is the problem of gossip, which uh, is our favorite substitute for doing church discipline in a biblical way. 
Uh, we won't do anything about broken relationships or strained or damaged relationships, but we don't seem to have the same reluctance about talking about them, and especially talking about them to other people, people that are not involved. Now, because we're sinners, and because we are speaking sinners, sins of the tongue, as James reminds us, is something that comes especially naturally to all of us. And one sin of the tongue is the abuse of language that we call gossip speaking to other people about concerns that really involve a third party with whom we ought to be talking and yet are unwilling to do so. Uh, it can go everywhere from slandering another person and blaming a conflict completely upon them, rightly or wrongly, to something as well-meaning and pious as uh, just asking for prayer. Uh, have you ever been on the receiving end of some choice gossip at a prayer meeting? Yeah? Sure, I think we probably all have. I just have this burden that the Lord's laid on me, and I'd like to share it at prayer meetings so that we can all pray about this problem. And then for 20 minutes, you get uh, another person in the church who's not present, sliced, diced, and bagged uh, in the name of asking for prayer. How many of you have received uh, gossip in the name of someone asking for advice about how to solve a problem with a third party? Has that ever happened? I just don't know what to do about so-and-so. But let me tell you what's happened, and then maybe you can give me some advice. And then it's the same kind of gossip, perhaps slander, um, without that other party being present, all in the name of something which sounds pious enough, wanting some advice. Uh, one of you told me yesterday about uh, uh, an experience that you had uh, asking for that kind of advice uh, from a pastor uh, who was eager to short-circuit that kind of sinful abuse immediately. And so you came up and said, Pastor, I have a problem with so-and-so, and I'd like your advice. And he said, wait a minute. And he went over and he got so-and-so, and he brought them over and said, okay, now what were you going to ask about? Let's talk about this and solve the problem. Now, that's a great solution, uh, but it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. So we have to realize how prone we are to gossip, how naturally it does come to us, and that within the church it is, I think, the most common substitute for what Jesus commands here. When we are upset with one another, when relationships are strained or broken, we often feel like we have to blow off some emotional steam. And it really doesn't matter who we talk to, because we're not particularly interested in solving the problem. We just want to ventilate. We want to get it off our chest. And so gossip will, be, will do just as well as actually talking to the person if all we want to do is let off some steam and uh, get uh, the pressure off our chest. But if you really want to help solve the problem, you can't do it in any other way than to do it the way Jesus says. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. That's the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about the beginning stages of this informal church discipline, you need to realize that Jesus commands that when you have a problem with a brother who has sinned against you, you have to go to him and resolve the issue through a loving, restorative confrontation. Now we've talked some about that uh, confrontation and the restoration as we talked about Luke chapter 17 verses 1 and following, and here we're back on that same territory again. What are we supposed to do? 
It's important to realize, first of all, though, that this is a command by the Lord Jesus himself. This is not a piece of advice that you get from a friend in the church, which you can take or leave depending upon how it strikes you or whether or not you think it's biblical. This is an explicit command by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's one of those passages in Scripture that doesn't admit of very much interpretation. You don't read, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you and say, now I wonder what Jesus is trying to say here. This is one of those difficult passages. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture and compare the obscure passages with the clear passages and try and figure out, what in the world does Jesus want me to do? Now, this passage doesn't take a whale of a lot of interpretation. You read the commentaries, and they only have very short paragraphs on this particular verse because it's not subject to a lot of confusion or interpretation. Jesus is pretty straightforward. And it's Jesus that is giving the command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a piece of pious advice. It is an authoritative command from the Lord our God, and therefore we must obey it. It is not negotiable. Now, why do we need it in the form of a command? I try to encourage you that there are a lot of good reasons in Scripture for why we ought to confront one another and exhort one another and forgive one another and restore one another. It brings joy. It brings a new depth of commitment to one another. It brings unity to the common life of the body of Christ. I mean, there's all kinds of good reasons. But facing a brother with whom you have a problem or who has a problem with you is a fearful and intimidating enough experience that even if we know wonderful things are going to come as an outcome, we're still hesitant to get things started. And so we need a good, healthy shove from our Lord Jesus to overcome our natural hesitation, our natural fearfulness of getting started. Because most of us are not sufficiently motivated at first by good things that may follow to get things started, and so we need a command so that we can say, whether I like it or not, whether I feel like it or not, whether it seems opportune or not, I must do what God commands and then to follow through on it. You can imagine Nathan, as the Lord told him to go and talk to David. Here's David, the king, who has the authority of life and death as the head of the state in Israel, who has been guilty of adultery, bad enough, and he's already knocked off one guy, Uriah the Hittite, murder. And then God says to Nathan, you go tell the king that he's done wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't imagine Nathan saying, good, I've always wanted to have a word with David about his lifestyle. My guess is he thought, what's going to keep David from covering up his sin just a little bit more by getting rid of a nosy prophet? I mean, that would be my inclination, wouldn't it be yours? Here's a guy who has the authority, he can do it, he's already done it once, and I'm going to go tell him that he's done wrong. And my guess is that no matter how much Nathan loved David, or how hopeful he was that this would all maybe turn out well in the end, if God hadn't said, Nathan, you go tell David, thus says the Lord, Nathan wouldn't have gone. He needed something to get him over the hump and get him on the way to doing what God wanted to do in David's life, and so he went. Now, as I've mentioned before, the more we cultivate that brotherly love that manifests itself in an eagerness to give and an eagerness to receive correction, then the less formidable that hump will be, and it will take less and less to get us over it. 
But maybe where we are today, as many of us think about perhaps confronting a brother or a sister for the very first time, we've never tried it before, then we need something to get us going, and Jesus gives us the command. I've already talked about the kind of substitutes that we can put in its place, gossip or slander or asking for prayer at prayer meetings and other things like that. Don't accept any substitutes. Make sure you just do it the way Jesus says, because Jesus does not say, if your brother sins against you, you can A, go and show him his fault just between the two of you, B, go to the prayer meeting and ask for a prayer uh, about the matter, B, C, go to your pastor and ask him to straighten it out for you, and D, so on down the line. It's not a multiple choice where you can pick one or another of the solutions. There's only one, and so we cannot accept any substitutes. Now, an objection that's often raised to Jesus' command here, or at least to the implementation of the command, is the idea that I didn't offend anybody, it wasn't my fault, therefore I'm not the one that has to go. You know, ordinarily we operate by kind of a rule of thumb that he that spills the milk cleans up the milk. I mean, that, that's just sort of the way we do it. If you're responsible for the problem, you're responsible to begin to solve the problem. But this is one of those instances where that rule of thumb doesn't really work. It isn't applicable because it would short-circuit the procedure before it ever got underway. Whether you offended or whether you are offended, you have the responsibility to go. And because Jay Adams and others have written on this extensively, I'm not going to take a lot of time with it beyond to state it. But remember, you have to take the initiative yourself. Jesus says here, if your brother sins against you, so it wasn't your fault, you are on the receiving end of the offense. But in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you realize in offering your gift at the altar that your brother has something against you, he's the offended party, you're the one that has done wrong, in either instance, you must take the first step to initiate the process of reconciliation. No matter who is at fault, the person who first becomes aware that there's a breach in the fellowship, that there's a problem, has to take the first step to begin to put things back together again. Now, why does Jesus lay the responsibility on the one who first becomes aware of the problem to take the initiative, to take the first step? Well, we talked about some of that last night. Your brother and sister or sister may not really know that there's a problem may not be aware that they have offended you. And so you may be bringing them a piece of information that they didn't realize. That story I told you last night that was out of one of Adam's books where the lady puts her nose in the air and runs out into the parking lot, she may not have known that her friend was offended by that. I mean, she was just thinking about, am I going to sneeze in somebody's face or not? That's what she was concerned about at the moment. And if the other person hadn't followed through on it, that breach might have grown and grown and grown and nobody would have ever known that there was a problem. And perhaps you've been in that situation where somebody finally brought to your attention that there was a problem and you really didn't understand that there was a problem. Maybe when you saw it, you said, oh, well, yeah, I could see how you could be offended by that. I apologize. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? But other instances, I mean, it might not have ever occurred to you to do anything about it because you didn't know that there was a problem. So the fact that the offender might be ignorant of his offense, that's a reason to send you going because he may never realize, or at least not realize for a long time, that anything's wrong. Or, as we noticed in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he may be trapped in his sin. He may be stuck and unable to move effectively to deal with the problem. 
So you go to give him some help to get the ball rolling. And you need to follow Jesus' example, which we noted again last night. In Mark 10:45, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In discipline, we are serving one another. We are caring for one another as we go to one another and give that kind of help. So ask yourself this question, I think, if you, uh, if you want to test yourself as you face a confrontation. Am I out to be vindicated? Do I just want to be right? Or am I really interested in helping and healing the relationship with my brother or sister? See, if I just want to be right, I can tell all my friends what the offender has done. And they, of course, because they are my friends, will tell me, yes, you're exactly right. You should be upset about this. This is terrible. How could this ever happen? And so you can get together a nice little group to talk about how terribly put upon you have been. So if you just want vindication, find the people that will vindicate you, gossip to them, and everything will be fine. Then they can all be angry at the offender as well as yourself, and you can make the split that much wider. That's how big church splits begin, you know, when the, when the club that likes Paul or the club that likes Peter or the club that likes Apollos gets together and says, you know, the other guys, this is what they think, this is what they believe. And then everybody says, yes, yes, that's true, we're right, we're right, we're right. If all you want is vindication, if all you want to do is prove that you are right, that you've been offended, then you can gossip, you can find your friends who will support you, and you can leave the estrangement with your brother or sister in place. But if you really have a shepherd's concern for that brother or sister, if you are really eager to minister and to serve them as Jesus has served you, then you simply can't do anything else than go and show him his fault and seek to restore him. Now the reason that you're going, this is the bottom of page 14, the purpose in going is to convict your brother or sister and win him or her back again to fellowship and to a holy walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus talks about going and showing your brother's fault between the two of you, he says if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. You are to go and show him his fault. The word there is elenko, and I put it in the bottom of the outline, which means to prosecute successfully. It's a term that arises out of the setting of the courtroom, out of the legal profession. It is making your case and pressing your case in court so effectively that you win a conviction. It's the kind of thing that Hamilton Berger was never able to do on Perry Mason. He was the prosecutor. He always was sure that he had the case that couldn't be beaten when he went into court, and week after week after week, or in the reruns, day after day after day, Perry Mason overturns his case, and Hamilton doesn't get the conviction. We are to go to our brother and make our case in such a way that we gain the conviction. Now, I don't want you in thinking about that terminology, again, you know, and maybe conjuring up images of Perry Mason, especially Hamilton Berger, who flew off the handle so often when he wasn't winning. Uh, you know, that, that, I'm not talking about the manner of approach. Again, we'll, we'll remind ourselves that our manner of approach has to be gentle and tentative at first, 
But your purpose, your goal, is to make your case so effectively that your brother will agree with you, will say, yes, I am convicted, I see the problem, and therefore I repent and I turn, and there can be restoration. So when you think about making your case effectively so as to convict your brother, you need to think about several things, one of which is that to the extent that life flows from doctrine, you better make sure that you are theologically sound in the case you're trying to make. That is, it has to be a biblical case. It has to be well thought out. For that reason, of course, theological estrangement is perhaps the most difficult kind of estrangement to deal with. Uh, it's the kind of things that theologians get into. It's the kind of things that pastors and elders and presbyteries get into where on every other level they may be perfectly w well reconciled, but they disagree on a point of doctrine. They have theological differences. And those are the most difficult to overcome, and yet, paradoxically, they can be the most easy to live with if they are identified and isolated so that you can carry on in agreement and in harmony, your life together on every other level, and then you're still going to argue over eschatology now and again, or you're still going to argue over baptism or something like that. So there has to be a real, clear, theological understanding in the case that you're trying to make with your brother. But because most of the interpersonal difficulties that we have within the church are not usually theologically rooted, they're ethically rooted or personal problems, we need to make sure that we have our ethics straight. Are we really trying to convict something of something that the word of God, someone of something that the word of God says is right or wrong, or are we just, as we said last night, um, uh, criticizing one another because we don't like something that's going on or not going on? We have to make sure that we know the word of God, that we're applying it accurately. We have to make sure that we have the evidence straight. I talked about this last night also, that the case can be proven because your brother is not going to be convicted of what you're saying if you've got your facts all messed up or if there isn't any evidence for the offense that you have taken. And then, of course, thinking about how to reason with the brother and how to appeal to him, those are also important factors. You know, it's possible to make a completely true case in a non-effective way because you just haven't approached it. Uh, in a persuasive way. You see, if you want to win your brother, if the idea is to bring him to conviction and to win him over, you want to be persuasive. When you parents are exhorting your children, when they're small anyway, you don't give a whole lot of thought to being persuasive. Because if you've trained your kids the way you want to, you want to just be able to say, do this or don't do that, and that's persuasive enough. Mom or dad gave a command. You know, you're not going to try and persuade your child to listen to you when they're playing in the middle of the street and the car's bearing down on them, and you're going to try and win them to come out of the street. You want to be able to say, David, get out of the street, and have them respond immediately. There's no time to be persuasive. But when we deal with other adults, we ordinarily can't just say, do this or don't do that, and they'll say, okay, fine, I'll do it. You need to think about how you can persuade, how you can win. And so having a winsome appeal, a well-thought-out convincing appeal, is all part of what goes into this idea of elenco, bringing somebody to be convinced that the case that you are making in confronting them is right. 
Now, realize in saying all of those things that that's not all, that doesn't make every initial confrontation, you know, a four-hour theological ethical discourse. But those are things that you ought to have in mind as you think about going to a brother. How can I make my point clearly, truthfully, persuasively so as to win him back? Because again, that's the goal, to convince him and to win him back. But you need to keep in mind how you are to go to him as well. And I just remind you what we said last night. Galatians 6.1 says we need to restore our brothers or sisters in a spirit of gentleness with an attitude of heart and mind that is shaped by gentleness, recognizing that but for God's grace we could be in the same trouble and may well be in the same trouble one day very soon. And what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1-6 through 6, about taking the beam out of your own eye so that you can see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And in that regard, I would say that when you go to a brother to confront them over a sin, the very first thing you ought to do is to consider what should you and can you confess to him or to her in terms of your own sin in the problem before you ever get started. Go humbly, go confessing. Now, there may be those rare times when you can say, I am absolutely 100% right in what I've done and how I've handled it. But thinking about what we were saying just a few minutes ago, you may well have to go and start out by saying, you know, I should have come to you immediately, but I didn't. I went and talked to so-and-so, and I need to confess my sin of gossip or slander before you ever get around to start taking the speck out of the other person's eye. You may not have been responsible for the original offense, but you may have harbored bitterness and resentment before you finally went to that person and I'm not suggesting that you do this as a disarming tactic to get their guard down. But as a matter of fact, it is a disarming thing to have someone coming to you confessing their own sin, broken and humbled before Christ, when they are then going to call upon you to face your responsibility, broken and humbled before Christ, and respond. So getting the beam and the speck out of your own eye often requires that you verbally confess your sin to your brother even before you begin to make your case to win him over, to win her over to agreement. And of course in Luke 17.3 we uh, notice that the language there, uh, the Greek word is epitomao, means to rebuke tentatively, that is to go giving your brother the benefit of the doubt and seeing if you have things straight. Well, let me suggest that just in terms of practicality, you start out by explaining the situation as you see it to your brother. Without an accusation, or at least without an explicit accusation, there may be in your explanation an implicit accusation. It seems to me that when we were having coffee the other day that you were pretty abrasive towards me and I... I didn't know what I had done or said to offend you, but you just seemed to be kind of relentlessly picking on everything that I said in the conversation. That's the way it seemed to me. That's the kind of approach. Explaining the situation as you see it. And then asking, did I miss something? Was there something, another factor? Were there extenuating circumstances? Was there more of the picture that I didn't know, that I ought to know in order to understand what went on? Get, make sure that you get all the facts straight. That's part of the tentativeness. You want to make sure that you understand the situation before you then make a judgment and bring a rebuke in that situation. 
Proverbs reminds us that it is foolish to listen to only one side of a story. And so, as we go rebuking tentatively, we are eager to hear your brother's defense. You know, it's surprising how often when we talk to somebody else and they defend their action or they defend their attitude, we simply heap that on as one more offense. Oh, they're being defensive. But you know, to defend yourself when that defense is true and relevant is not defensiveness, it's speaking the truth. And you ought to be willing to hear your brother's self-defense. Now, his defense may be, in the worst possible situation, a pack of lies, or it may be suffering from not enough information, not enough understanding as well, but you ought to hear his side of the story. And then once he's heard what the way you received it, and you've filled in the picture and gotten the facts straight and heard his defense, then you're going to know if there's still a problem that needs to be rebuked, or maybe that process of just understanding your brother and what he has done and why he's done it will be sufficient to say, okay, I really shouldn't have taken offense, and I'm sorry for that. Let's just let this go. But after you do that, after the tentativeness, there may still be something that you need to rebuke and correct with God's grace, and that's when you do that. And if you have done it in that regard, if you've made the case as clearly and as fully as possible, then that will be a convincing and a convicting rebuke, which is what you really need in order to be able to win back your brother. That instance of Nathan and David is an interesting one from the standpoint of the fact that Nathan took a very indirect way. Now, I wouldn't advocate that for 99% of the cases when you go to talk to somebody else, um, and Larry's already used up the one we can use this week, so nobody else can be indirect. <laughs> but Nathan chose an indirect approach because he was convinced, I presume, that it would be the most effective way to communicate to David without a, a raising up a kind of a defensiveness, a sinful defensiveness initially, and he let David convict himself. And he told the story, the little parable about the man who stole the ewe lamb and had all of the lambs himself. So you know the story. And David got madder and madder and madder and madder as the story went on. And then Nathan, in effect, says, well, David, what, what would you do about something like this? And David just blasted away. So then all Nathan had to do was make the connection. That story, David, is about you. You're the man. And David had already passed judgment upon himself. He had already convicted himself. And he was broken, and he repented, and returned to the Lord. So you see, this skinning this cat of this initial confrontation can come in lots of different packaging. But it should be clear, it should be convincing, and it should be winsome, because that's what you want. You want your brother back again. You want the relationship restored. Now, Jesus says, if your brother listens to you, you have won your brother over. And that's the end of it. That takes care of it. This is a private matter, says Jesus. And if you can win your brother back privately, then that's all the farther it ordinarily needs to go if it's just an offense between him or her and you personally. Jesus is concerned not to disrupt the life of the church any more than necessary. We are to be peacemakers. And that means trying to confine the disruption that is inherent in this kind of confrontation as much as possible. When I lived in Sonora preaching and teaching in the church up there, 
one of the men in our church, one of our deacons, was a, uh, uh, an excavation contractor. And up there in the mountains, you know, if you scratched off the top two inches of soil, everything was rock. So anytime somebody wanted to come to Sonora to build their retirement home and, and uh, the palace of their dreams there in the mountain, uh, they'd call him out and they'd say, I want a nice big flat spot here on the side of the mountain. And he'd laugh and say, okay, well, we'll give it a try. And he'd get out there with his big tractor and scratch off the topsoil, and then there'd be the big rock. So he'd have to call a demolition expert to come out and blast some rock away so that he could make the nice flat place for the dream home uh, for these retired folks that wanted to live up there. And he was telling me about this demolitions man that he used for years that was so skillful at doing his work that he could plan a charge, and after studying the rock and everything, he could tell you exactly where those pieces of rock were going to fall after he blew things up. And so he'd come in there and he'd say, okay, Ted, now when I, when I put this charge here, there's going to be a chunk about yay big right over there. There'll be another chunk about yay big right over here and another one over there. So he'd put the charge in, but then to ensure that those pieces didn't go in thousands of little pieces all over the place, he had thick rubber pads that he would lay over the charge so that when that dynamite went off, rather than exploding in a thousand pieces everywhere, he would get that, that explosion suppressed and the pieces break off in big chunks and they just sort of come off the ground and lay down like that. And uh, Ted says it was, a, it was artwork to behold. It was, it was beautiful because he'd say, one piece will be there, one piece will be there, one piece will be there. And sure enough, when he set off the charge, the, the rock would just sort of blossom like a flower and the big chunks would lay back on the ground. But the reason was because he confined the explosion with those big, heavy rubber pads. And in effect, that's what this business of privacy is all about as we deal with these things. There's going to be some kind of an explosion, or at least a potential explosion, some kind of friction as we come to confront one another, no matter how careful we are about it. And therefore, we are to keep it under wraps as much as possible so that that doesn't disrupt the life of the church any more than necessary. It's a confining of the disruption as much as possible. And so we are not to noise about these problems prematurely. We deal with them privately as much as possible to limit the scope of the problem. And therefore, people in the church who are not part of the problem and can't be part of the solution, don't need to know about the problem at all. It will not help them, and it may well hurt them to be brought into it, at least until it is appropriate, according to Jesus' method. Now, that's not the same. This kind of privacy is not the same as what is sometimes spoken of in Christian circles as being willing to promise absolute confidentiality. Over the last several years, in connection with the rise of biblical Christian counseling, the question of confidentiality has been raised. And perhaps even more pointedly, in the counseling that has been addressed specifically in the pro-life movement to uh, girls with crisis pregnancies or women with crisis pregnancies, whether or not a Christian counselor can promise this girl that he won't tell her mother or her father or her boyfriend or her husband or anybody else promising in advance absolute confidentiality Many Christians believe that we have to do that, and some of them will point to a verse like this to justify that. Scripture nowhere commands us, nor does it allow us, to take any kind of absolute, unconditional vow, because that may well involve us in sin unknowingly, and we may not vow ignorantly to sin. 
And so I'm not saying that you have to assume from one another that this simply won't go any farther. Because for one thing, if your brother is not won over, it has to go a little farther to bring two or more people. And if that doesn't work, it has to go even farther by bringing it to the attention of the church. So it's not an absolute confidentiality that's being promised, but just the sensitivity not to extend knowledge of the problem any farther than necessary. So I guess a rule of thumb is, if you don't need to know to solve the problem, and you don't need to know because you're part of the problem, then you don't need to know, period. Now that means our natural uh, curiosity has to be crucified daily, so that we're not trying to find out, well, well, I know it's all settled, I, but I know you had a problem with so-and-so last week. Couldn't you just tell me a little bit about it? How did it go? You have to say, no, I won't tell you about it, because it really doesn't matter anymore. We've solved the problem. So privacy limits the scope of the problem, at least in the early stages, if it is successful. Then Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And here the idea of listening is not just the idea of being able to audibly receive what you have to say, but as listening often applies in Scripture, it means to heed, to respond to what you hear. You can hear without heeding. You can hear without listening. And Jesus is saying if he hears what you have to say and responds properly, then you have won your brother. Now how does he heed? Well, he heeds by repenting out of a conviction that you have brought to bear by the presenting of your case and the repentance that follows from that. Now, the question was asked yesterday, what is repentance? And uh, I'm happy enough with the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism answer, as well as the one that's in our Confession of Faith. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 87 asks the question, what is repentance unto life? The answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, having being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sin, and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. Now, this is speaking about repentance unto life from the perspective of when we first come to Christ as sinners who make that transition by the grace of God into living fellowship with Jesus Christ. But if you listen to this definition in terms of daily repenting, or the repenting that comes under the discipline of the Lord in this informal way, we're saying that repentance has its source in the grace of Christ. That is certainly true. In which case, a sinner, or in this point, an offending brother, having become truly aware of his sinfulness, by the conviction that you have brought through this rebuke, through making your case effectively, and also being aware of the mercy of God in Christ, which you should have also and should also tell him about, because the point is not, here's what you did wrong, but here's how you can make it right. And God will freely forgive you, and he will restore you, and he will lead you in the paths of new obedience if you turn from your sins. So he understands the sinfulness, he understands in a fresh way the mercy of God in Christ relevant to his particular offense. And he grieves for his sin and hates it and turns from it to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. So that's what we're looking for. Now again, that's an elaborate definition and it may not always manifest itself instantly in our conversations with our brothers, but that's what we're looking for. A sense of sin, a sense of mercy in Christ, 
a sorrow for sin which drives us away from it, and then a determination to live in new obedience, and in this case, relevant to the sin that brought the division in the first place. It's not just an apology. It's not saying, gee, I'm really sorry. Um, oftentimes we do that. We apologize when we ought to repent. And an apology is a kind of superficial repentance that doesn't guarantee a change of life, doesn't necessarily even guarantee conviction before the Lord. And uh, when somebody apologizes, we're sort of embarrassed and more inclined to say, oh, well, that's okay. You know, I've heard that so many times, and I've done it myself. You know, you'll, you'll get on somebody for doing something wrong, and then they say, oh, I'm sorry. And then you say, well, that's okay. Well, it was okay. Why did you bring it up in the first place, right? But we're sort of embarrassed. And, and to say, I forgive you, sounds sort of ominous, sounds sort of weighty. So we just say, oh, well, that's okay. Well, it's not okay. Repentance needs to include asking for and receiving forgiveness. Now, I do at this point have to take issue with my father and colleague in the faith, Jay Adams, because as he reads this um, verse and others like it, he wants to stress the idea that it is if your brother says, it's, not a, it, it's actually um, um, comes out of Luke 17, if your brother says, I repent, then you must forgive him. And the emphasis that Jay lays uh, in a number of his books is on this idea of saying, I repent. And if he comes back seven days saying, I repent. And the way he argues that sort of drives the wedge between the saying of repenting and actually repenting. Now, I think his concern in emphasizing that is that we are not going to put one another on probation. Well, we say, okay, I hear you say repent. Now, we'll check back in six months and see if I'm really going to forgive you. We ought not to hold forgiveness in abeyance. But that's not the same thing as saying that there need be no fruit, that there need be no sincere commitment to the practice of new obedience as part and parcel of that repentance. And it doesn't mean then that if someone says I repent and doesn't change, doesn't make efforts at new obedience, that the forgiveness granted may not be subject to review just like the quality of that repentance is subject to review. And so I don't think we ought to put each other on probation, withhold forgiveness until we've proven all the fruit of repentance. But repentance must bear fruit in new obedience. And for that reason, we must be willing to grant forgiveness, but also to evaluate the repentance and the forgiveness granted to that repentance over a period of time as people change. And I think that especially becomes critical when you face problems of incorrigibility, where someone has been confronted by people for a sin over and over and over again, and has repented, or at least has said they repent, over and over and over again, and yet there really is no emerging pattern of new obedience. And so you begin to say, this is a problem of incorrigibility. It is not true repentance and the sin is persisting. And in that sense, then, incorrigibility itself becomes a problem, a sin in its own right. So whether you're shoplifting packages of gum, or uh, hot-wiring automobiles and stealing them, or murdering your neighbor, you know, we do usually say, well, if you just say you're, you're sorry, or you apologize, or you repent, then, then everybody ought to believe you. That, that sort of covers what we consider to be small interpersonal sins. But let's say somebody was uh, 
a murderer. And in our day and age, he was getting away with his murder, let's say. Well, you know, if he said, I'm sorry today for shooting so-and-so, and I repent and I won't do it again, and then on Tuesday he shot another guy, you wouldn't sort of say, well, here we'll, we'll start all over from scratch. We'll just pretend like this never happened before. Now, you'd say there's, there's a pattern emerging here. And then if he said, I'm sorry, I repent again, and then Friday he shot somebody else, you would say, well, murder is bad, but this incorrigibility that's beginning to emerge is an equally serious problem. And many of you realize that in the Old Testament particularly, incorrigibility in a criminal or even in a child could be a problem by itself where the elders could be confronted and asked to deal with an incorrigible person, someone who said they repented but didn't. Repentance must include new obedience, and that new obedience has to be evaluated. And I think that's especially critical for sessions when they bring about a censure upon a person and then have to decide when and under what circumstances will they lift that censure. They can't just listen to what the person says, but evaluate what they say in connection with what they do. So I think that's something where there has to be some wisdom and some balance. I would also say that the scripture does require restitution in some instances as part of repentance. So let's say you were dealing with a thief, and he says, I repent then his repentance must include making restitution before that repentance is credible. And so in that instance, an individual or a church would say, until restitution is made, then the repentance isn't clear, and forgiveness and the lifting of censure cannot be done. So there's a lot that goes into this matter of winning over a brother. What do we expect out of him? And what we expect on a personal level in the first stage may be different from what we will expect later on at the second or the third stage where the brother shows a persistent lack of change. Because even as the brother repents in the first stage, he may well persist in the sin, and you'll be back to him in the second stage for the same problem, even though he has said, I repent, but there's been no change. And that same thing can take place between that second stage and the stage where it comes to the church itself. But God willing, and he is willing often, your brother will repent under that first confrontation, and then you have won your brother. And the term there means to exchange enmity for friendship. And so as you grant forgiveness upon his repentance, reconciliation of the, rest of the fellowship, of the relationship can be had, and a restoration of the old relationship ought to follow to the extent that it's possible. Now, there are some places uh, in discussions of church discipline, formal and informal, where an argument has been made, yes, you need to forgive, and yes, you need to be reconciled on a personal level, but no, the old relationship doesn't have to be restored. And I think that often comes in connection, let's say, with marital sins, uh, where, let's say, two Christians their relationship is broken by some kind of sin, and, uh, and then there is counseling and, uh, and church discipline and statements of repentance are offered and seem to be perfectly credible, and yet one party or the other says, well, I will forgive them and we will restore our relationship, but I don't want to be married to them anymore. We won't restore the old relationship. Well, I have tried and tried and tried to figure out what reconciliation means if an old relationship that can be restored isn't restored, and I can't figure out what it is, except a partial reconciliation. 
and Scripture doesn't call us to partial reconciliations. Now, there are instances where the old relationship cannot be fully restored because of some other biblical principle. To take the example of divorce again, let's say a non-Christian man married to a Christian wife commits adultery and then, uh, and as a result of that, or maybe divorces her unlawfully and then repents and so forth, um, but doesn't become a Christian, then the old relationship through remarriage couldn't be reinstituted because the scripture forbids a believer to marry a non-believer. So the reconciliation can only come so far before another biblical principle comes into play in deciding how much can that uh, relationship be restored. But apart from that, the intervention of another principle that limits the reconciliation, that reconciliation ought to be as complete and the old relationship ought to be restored. The other, the other instance that comes to mind, and uh, I haven't thought through this as extensively as I want to, so I'm not going to give it to you etched in stone, not that any of this stuff is etched in stone particularly except what comes right out of the book, but um, it would be the question of a, uh, of a minister who is disciplined for immorality and perhaps deposed from the ministry in connection with his censure and then repents, and in every other way, it appears that his repentance is clear and true and solid and fruitful. And yet the church might decide that uh, we'll have him back as a member, but he can never be an elder again, or he could never be a minister again because of what he's done. Well, I have some serious questions about that, all, that too. If there is not some other biblical principle that keeps him from being a minister if his repentance is genuine and fruitful and manifestly so among the people of God, then why should it be any more a problem for him to be a minister than, let's say, someone who is converted out of really heinous sins in their non-Christian life, who then becomes a Christian and goes to seminary and becomes an ordained elder or minister? I don't see why there would be necessarily uh, another infringement to the restoration of a deposed minister once he repents. Now, I don't think the OPC has that practice as a, as a matter of, of principle, but I think there are evangelical churches that would uh, prohibit a minister, even repentant minister, from being restored to his ministerial or uh, other official status and responsibility in the church. Well, that's enough about that uh, particular thing. If, if you want to ask some questions about that, we can, we can do that. But reconciliation includes the restoration of old relationships to the extent that it is permitted by other biblical principles. Well, let me just, uh, <laughs> it's 11 o'clock. Let's go back and finish up this lesson um, that we're in on page 15 of the outline. One other thing I ought to mention just before we go on to Roman numeral 3, talking about getting help from others. What about if you're on the receiving end of some gossip about a third party? And so you become aware that there's a problem, not by being the one who is offended or the one who is the offender, but now you've been brought illegitimately into the picture, and yet you now know that there's a problem. What ought you to do? Well, uh, I think the, the best step to take uh, is to use the occasion of hearing this news as the confrontation for you with the person who brings you the gossip, let's say, urging them to go back to the person that they have the problem with and begin to initiate the steps of Matthew 18. So 
immediately upon the reception of that kind of information, and sometimes you're going to hear it before you really quite know what's happened or how you got into it. Um, it's not bad to cultivate a reputation in the church of not being uh, an open ear to gossip. That helps sometimes because people, you know, when, once you send a few people back to a confrontation after you've heard some gossip, they won't come and gossip to you anymore uh, because they'll know that's too threatening. They might as well just cut out the middleman and go talk to the person they're supposed to talk to in the first place. Um, but I do think, and I'm going to mention this also in connection with sessions, I'm not wholly satisfied uh, that if someone is reluctant to do that, that we ought to say, well, we, we just can't do anything more about it because the first stage should be private, and now I'm involved in it, and I've got a person who's reluctant to go back to that first person. Until we learn how to practice discipline, we may have to be willing to involve ourselves where, strictly speaking, we're not involved, but in order to facilitate the process. So, for example, if you were that person, you said to the other one, you know, you really ought to go talk to Joe Blow because that's the guy you've got the problem with, and, and they want to send them off to do that job, and for whatever reason, because they're, they're fearful or, or don't understand how they ought to do it or whatever else, you may well say, listen, I will go with you, and we'll walk through this first stage together, and that way you'll learn how to do it, and that way you can hold the person accountable to see to it and get the ball rolling that way. It's the same thing with a session. Um, maybe I'll just say this now, and then I won't have to say it later. If, if a matter comes to the session's attention out of step, before it should properly be there. The session could just say, well, Matthew 18 hasn't been followed, so we'll throw this thing out of court on a technicality. Or they could say, this is backwards, but one of us elders is going to go with that person and start walking through the stages of Matthew 18 until it comes back to the church court in its proper um, uh, setting. So I, I, I'm not happy that if, if, if it's not done according to the book by the time it gets to us, I don't think we ought to just say, well, you do it right, and, and leave it at that. We may have to be willing ourselves personally to take a hand in that, uh, but make it very clear that that's what we're there for, to try and teach and to lead our brothers and sisters in uh, taking these steps in an appropriate way. So sometimes you'll become aware of an offense between two people where you're really not a party to it, uh, but have been brought into it illegitimately, and you need then to become one who now is aware that there's a problem and you're going to act to work towards restoration. Well, uh, picking up then at Roman numeral 3 on page 15, Jesus says in verse 16, if he will not listen, that is, if he doesn't heed, if he doesn't respond appropriately, if he doesn't repent, then there must be more done to seek resolution. So he says, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So here, the second stage in church discipline is still informal. It hasn't come officially to the attention of the church. But you need to bring more spiritual pressure to bear upon this brother because his response to the first confrontation has, to, has been to harden his heart and not listen to what has been said. What are you to do if your brother does not listen and is not one? Well, it is important to realize, uh, first of all, that the process of discipline from the first confrontation moves from stage to stage in terms of the failure to listen more so than the original infraction. Uh, sometimes we might be tempted to think, and I've even read church discipline books that cast it in these terms, you know, that certain sins are so serious 
that they ought to be dealt with in a disciplinary way, and other sins are not so serious, and they shouldn't be, uh, they don't warrant procedure along the lines of church discipline. But whatever the original infraction is, you know, somebody uh, flares up in an unrighteous anger and chews you out, so you are offended by their abusive speech, that might be the problem. The first infraction might be embezzling money from your company. Or the first infraction might be committing adultery. Whatever the first infraction is, when it's confronted one-on-one -on -one and your brother doesn't listen, then what moves it to the next stage is his failure to listen. Not that embezzling money is less significant than adultery, but more significant than uh, cussing somebody out or something like that. The original problem still needs to be solved. Ultimately, you're coming back to that for repentance. But there's now an intermediate problem, and as the process goes on, that becomes the more and more significant problem that your brother is refusing to listen. So it's not so much the original infraction, but uh, the refusing to listen. And that's a manifestation of a stubbornness, of a self-justification, of a hardness of heart that becomes increasingly ominous as the disciplinary process proceeds. So the brother's major problem becomes his hardness of heart, his unwillingness to listen and to repent. So the second step is designed to bring further spiritual pressure to bear by involving others. Now here the private confrontation becomes a little bit more public because now one additional person, which would make two going, or two additional people, which would make three going, are now involved. They have to be made aware of the situation. But again, in involving them, I don't think it's a matter of saying, okay, Mr. A won't listen to what I have to say, so I'm going to go and talk to Mr. X and Mr. Y, and I'm going to get them to help. But in order so that they'll know what's going on, I'm going to brief them extensively and give them my side of the story, and then we'll go and three of us will gang up on Mr. A but rather to ask them, this is what I'm about, I'm trying to exhort my brother, he hasn't listened to me, there's a problem there, will you come with me? And then with your brother, uh, who has offended you, and these other witnesses, you lay out your case. Essentially, you're rehearsing what happened on the first confrontation. And you're making your case, and you're showing the evidence, and you're letting your brother tell his side of the story, and they are then sitting in on that. They haven't been brought into it in their own right, but they have come as witnesses as fellow judges, as counselors, to be helpful. Because that's really their function. Uh, Jesus cites the statement from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in, in Jesus' mind, the primary function of these additional people involved is to witness what goes on. So in a sense, you're creating a mini-jury that is going to come and sit and hear the evidence back and forth between you and the offended or the offending brother, and then they are going to help pass judgment on the merits of the case. Uh, they will judge the case, judge the evidence, and that can work both ways. You may well find that when you take the two brothers along to sit in and listen to the case, they may say, well, listen, you haven't made your case. We don't think that you're right in exhorting this brother because you haven't understood this biblical principle or you haven't got this piece of evidence straight or you haven't got this chunk of beam out of your eye or something like that. So you have to be ready to have the knife of discipline cut both directions at every stage. 
And it may well be that those men or women or a combination of the two that you bring along as witnesses will bear witness against you, even though you have instituted the disciplinary process because your case isn't convicted. And they are convicted that you are wrong. So in effect, they join your brother in exhorting you to repent and to change. And it can happen that way. Or it may happen the other way, where they are convinced and they join in testifying against that brother and calling him to repentance. So in that sense, they are co-confronters, they are co-counselors, as they join you in bringing the testimony of two or three witnesses against the brother's heart, first of all. And then later on, if, it, if he doesn't repent and they become witnesses before the church, then they also bring a witness against the brother to the church. So the idea is that you want other people, because in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom, but also because you want more eyes, more ears, hearing and seeing what you have to say, as well as what your brother has to say, and bringing them along. Just a few thoughts on criteria for choosing the one or two others. Um, things to keep in mind. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea, although there's nothing that strictly... Uh, restricts it. I don't think it's a good idea necessarily to bring elders, even individually, into the process at this point, because they will come into the picture later on, but there may be occasions when there's a good reason to ask an individual elder as a private citizen rather than as an elder to join you as the witness in a particular situation. But ordinarily, I think it's just as well to pick other people from the congregation to go as the one or two others rather than getting a part of the session or a part of the eldership involved at this stage. But you ought to keep in mind the need for integrity and self-control. You don't want to exacerbate the problem by the witnesses you choose by bringing somebody in who is himself open to many accusations of having massive beams in his eye. Now, if you've worked very carefully to make sure that you've settled matters before your brother and then you bring somebody else in who is a ready target for accusations and even honest accusations, and it's going to be that much harder to use that additional person to bring the witness against your brother. So, and certainly we're all required by Christ to live lives of integrity and self-control. But the need for integrity and the need for self-control are simply magnified when you think about how useful can I be in this situation. For example, if you're going to confront a brother who has cussed you out, and then you take a brother along with you who is noted for having an acid tongue himself. You know, not too helpful. Except for, you know, that acid tongue might join with the other acid tongue against you and you may find yourself doubly cursed. Um, by the same token, if a man doesn't have control of his tongue and he goes to confront another with control of his tongue, he's going to himself be convicted and if he's not willing to repent, then that's simply going to invalidate his spiritual power in being able to exhort. So integrity and self-control are always important, but they're especially evident in their importance when we talk about uh, people who will be helpful in, in, in church discipline. Uh, if it's possible to choose someone who has an evident special wisdom or insight relative to the case, uh, that can be very valuable. If you're counseling people, let's say, who have a, a, a problem in their marriage and there's another brother or sister in the church that you know of that went through similar difficulties and 
and came out stronger and more holy and more committed to God as a result of that, that may well be a good person to choose to give some help in that area because of the special wisdom, special experience, or insight relative to the case. Again, you certainly don't want to bring someone in who is themselves implicated in the original offense. And um, you might have to do a little checking to find out who's been connected to the grapevine as whatever gossip may have been spreading around because you may pick someone as a witness who's already gotten a very jaundiced perspective on the case because they heard about it round about the grapevine. Now you're going to bring them in with all of their prejudice and preconceived notions. And again, it won't be very helpful. And then uh, someone perhaps who has a proven effectiveness in confronting and winning brothers. The Bible does teach us that there are a multiplicity of gifts. And there are some people who are very, very effective in one-on-one -on -one confrontations. They have a special gift to be the kind of person and to behave in the kind of way that we've been recommending all of us have to be to a degree. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not taking back what I said yesterday by suggesting that there are some people who are especially qualified and therefore responsible to do church discipline and the rest of us aren't. We all have to do as good as we can. But if there's an expert, if there is a gifted person that we can use and have access to, then we would be foolish to forego that. Um, you know, if you've got a leaky pipe in your bathroom, whether you're a plumber or not, it needs to be fixed and you have a responsibility to fix it. But if there's a plumber next door who says, hey, if you ever need any help with your plumbing, let me know, you'd be pretty stupid to let him sit at home watching the football game while you're wrestling with the uh, plumbing if you don't know what you're doing, and he does, and he's offered to help. So that's the idea. We all have to do the best we can, but in the body of Christ, there are people who are especially effective, and oftentimes it's some of the uh, seasoned, experienced saints who have uh, have mastered a whole lot of problems, a lot of crises throughout their Christian life and are able to put that into practice. Um, I know in both the con uh, converse, uh, congregations that I've served, I mean, when you think about getting one or two others, there are a few people that come to mind as, as prime candidates for doing that because they've had lots of experience and they've done lots of these things and they have learned how to live a holy, self-disciplined life in lots of different settings and they are really choice helpers in this intermediate stage of church discipline. Now, there are probably other things that you can think of that you ought to keep in mind, but those are at least some suggestions in picking up an additional helper or two to go to help confront the brother or sister that is strained. Finally, under this heading, just remember that Jesus promises to solve the problems in the church by this method. We talked last night about not bringing every issue up in terms of church discipline. We don't have to deal with each issue on the basis of a confrontation. Proverbs 10, 12, and 19, 11, and other passages remind us that love does cover a multitude of sins, and we ought to try and do that, first of all. We ought to apply 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and do the best we can at putting the best construction on the problem, trying to minimize uh, our hurt feelings and so forth. But if after all that's done, there's still a problem that is a tension, then it needs to be confronted and dealt with in terms of Matthew 18. Even if it's not a major issue, as I said last night, but perhaps a persistent, destructive habit that is 
uh, debilitating a brother or sister from their growth and grace, then that might be a matter that needs our attention, even though each individual manifestation of the problem is not something that we couldn't overlook. Um, and that's a judgment call sometimes, you know. Sometimes uh, you might be able to live with it and it doesn't bother you so bad, but you know that it does offend others in the congregation very, very much. It's more of a stumbling block, more of a difficulty to them, so you have to go and try to deal with it. You can always ask yourself the question by, again, as a kind of rule of thumb, what will be lost if I overlook this problem besides my feelings and my selfishness? You know, if the only thing at stake is that I had my feelings hurt, then that's probably not good enough reasons to go because you can quiet your hurt feelings. But if it's more than my selfishness or my hurt feelings, and especially if the health and strength and fruitfulness of the body of Christ is threatened, then we better be ready to go. We ought to go. But Jesus promises that this method will work, and most often, I think, in these early stages. He says in verses 19 and 20, Again, I tell you that if two or three of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. It's very interesting that, uh, that those verses, of course, are often claimed as uh, authority for uh, receiving answers to prayer when we agree together, but coming as they do in the context of this church discipline, it means that you're talking about brothers who are agreeing together and dealing with the problem. And they are agreeing together in bringing that problem before the Lord. And they are agreeing together to use the method that God has given to solve the problem. And they are agreeing together that Christ has promised to bring solutions to problems that way. So it's not just, you know, I introduce a, a request in a prayer meeting and then you say, yes, Lord, I agree with that. And so we've agreed together and we'll have our answer from the Lord. It's much more extensive agreement in this context, agreeing what the problem is, agreeing what the biblical way to deal with the problem is, agreeing what the promise concerning the dealing with the problem is, all of those things express themselves to God in prayer, but also to the brothers and sisters as they work through this process of discipline. And the whole process, therefore, comes under this promise that Jesus will bring about restoration and recovery through this means. So we need to cultivate a willingness to give and to receive discipline because we are members of one another. We belong to one another in the body of Christ. And we need to believe Jesus' promise that he will make it effective both in prayer as well as in action. Okay, any questions about that real quick before we uh, dash on to the next lesson? Yes? Um, on the one hand, you told the story about the woman who yeah, I, I think if you can do that, that's fine. But sometimes hurt feelings can't be quieted. I mean, you, you do the best you can, and you're still hurting, smarting enough that there, you know, that there's a residual friction, and uh, you know, and, and telling that little story. You know, maybe she shouldn't have been so upset, but the point of that parable was she didn't really have grounds to be upset and found out when she talked to the lady. But I, you know, I think uh, if, uh, if we can willingly let our feelings be hurt sometimes, turning the other cheek, as Jesus says in effect, then that's better than uh, 
But there again, you know, you might have hurt feelings one time, then there may be a repetition of an incident later on, and again, it's just a hurt feeling, but it's a hurt feeling that connects to a previous incident, and that may make it enough to tip it over the scales to say, I better deal with this. Yeah, I mean, if you really, I mean, if this was your best friend and all of a sudden she treated you 180 out from what you were used to, you would probably wonder what, what has happened, you know, what have I done or what, you know, what's going on, so, but, uh, if the only thing that's at stake is that we were stung a little bit, that's really not enough, I don't think, unless you do your very best to overcome it and there's still something there. But the point is, whatever you do to try and quiet it, to try and cover it, if there's anything left sticking up that affects your relationship with a brother or sister, that's what you need to deal with. Questions on this point? Yeah. Jim. Okay, yeah, the, the, the conflict or the apparent conflict between covering in love and going out of love to the person. Yeah, well, I guess part of that involves the, the distinction of whether what is at stake is really, let's say, a sinful problem or an offensive problem. I mean, am I upset because of something aimed at me, or is this something really that has been an ungodly thing that threatens that brother's own walk with the Lord? Uh, and sometimes those two can be pretty tied up. Uh, I know there are situations that I've been involved in where I've said, well, if this just was a matter of me being offended, I can live with it. But this is also a matter of sin that is going to damage a person's life or maybe a person's ministry. So I'm going, and really then it's even a less selfish problem because it's not so much what they've done to me, but here's another incident of a characteristic or a sin that manifests itself in other places that needs to be dealt with to help that person along. So... Um, um, but both are manifestations of love. If there's not a serious problem there, then loving it and letting, uh, loving them and, and just letting it go, rather than saying, now here's a problem that you, you've hurt me somehow. But love would require that you fix it if it's something that's really wrong with them in terms of sin or a persistent problem that needs some help. Although, as I said the other day, there's nothing wrong with going to talk to somebody else about a problem that you have with them that isn't particularly sinful, but it does create some friction or some tension between you so that in understanding one another better, at least, you can quiet that, that uh, difficulty. So, okay, yeah, Lynn. What are some of the things I should find out before I go with someone who asks me to go with them to hear Sometimes I feel as though when I go along with them, I'm not sure how they got to where they are now, and I feel like, you bring in the end of this now. I want to know a lot. Should I hear their side before you get in there? I mean, should I ask you to go talk to them first? And, and I'm kind of concerned that when somebody comes to me, once I show up there, I'm with that person, and I feel like I'm implicated in the, in the system, and I want to go about it. How much do I need to know? Yeah. Well, I think all you need, what you need to know before you make a judgment in the question uh, would be, you know, have you got all the facts straight? Is the Bible being clearly understood and applied properly? And those kinds of things that I talked about. I don't think you necessarily need to know that before you go. 
But before you go, I think you would want to at least assure yourself that the brother who's now asking you to join him has followed through on the first step. And you might even quiz him a little bit about, you know, did he do the kinds of things? Did you get the other side of the story and so forth? Uh, without necessarily ne unearthing a lot of details, trying to analyze the procedure. You know, is an appeal in order, which is in effect what they're doing? Um, and if it is, then go. And then you still may let you know, the first guy tell his side of the story before the other guy does, but they will both be present so that they can hear what's being said about one another. That's the main point. You don't want to end up getting essentially one side of the story without the other person at least being able to hear. And, uh, you know, you may want to moderate that when you're in a meeting and say, okay, now you tell me what you think the problem is and then vice versa like that. So, but I think the main thing you need to know before you go is, uh, has the first step been properly uh, carried out? Yeah. Uh, maybe I missed it. Would you recommend that if the two people that are contending somewhat with each other and trying to at least uh, come to reconciliation, they can't, should they maybe agree who they'd like to come in and oversee this instead of having one side go bring somebody else in so it seems like the team coming in against one person. Yeah, well, and that, that could be. It would depend probably on how, what degree of understanding came out of that first meeting. I mean, you know, what Jesus says here is, is, is cast in a fairly one-sided turn. You know, you go to your brother. It's his fault. You exhort him. You win him. That's the end of it. But if you don't, then you have to take the initiative. But you may... Uh, you know, some things are complex enough that out of the first confrontation, you may have settled 70% of the problems, but there are still some items that need further attention, and maybe where there's still a, a real disagreement. And so you might be able to agree with the brother, well, let's ask so-and-so and so-and-so to come along. But on the other hand, if it's a very uh, harsh rejection of your exhortation, where they just sort of say, get out of here, I don't want to talk to you about it, what business is it of yours anyway? then they're not likely to say, and when you come back, bring so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so with you. Yeah. More likely they'll say, don't show up with anybody, and if you do, I won't let you in. Okay, well, let me press on then to uh, the next uh, lesson.